Last week we began our study in really this short letter from the Apostle Peter. He's writing from a prison in Rome somewhat near the end of his life. And, and he begins the book by saying, make sure you know that, that through God's divine power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, God has given to all of those who belong to Jesus Christ everything that they will need to inherit eternal life. Moreover, through that same divine power, the the power that sent forth the Spirit at Pentecost, God has given to us all the divine power we need to live a, a life of godliness. Having called us to His own glory and excellence, how will you lead an effective, fruitful life in Jesus Christ? That's what our text teaches us today. So we pick up 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Here's God's Word. This divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming, from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind." having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. Let's pray for His help. And now, O Lord, as we approach your word, we ask truly that you would send forth your spirit and give to your people the ears to hear what you are speaking and what you say. We ask, Father, that you would again use a sinful, crooked stick like me, full of imperfections, to point the narrow way to the perfect one, to King Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. I think this is a passage that can really give young Christians a fit. Here's what I mean. If God has given to you all things for salvation, then why does he tell you to supplement your faith with other things? Sounds at first like moralism, some sort of legalism, works-based salvation. Moreover, if you were looking for a reason to fear that you could potentially lose your salvation, you might come to verse 10 and go, see, there's a proof text, I could fall. I really could lose my salvation. And I remember reading this passage of Scripture about 19 or 20 years old. And I remember feeling deeply confused. Well, the way to resolve the tension is to distinguish the difference between salvation, that is, coming to saving faith in Christ, and then what you do once you've been saved. 
A Christian is one who, by faith, has embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. And the Bible gives all the credit for salvation to God and Him alone. It's God who elects some sinners to be saved from their sins. They were lost, and He elected to save them. It's God's Spirit who stirs within their hearts those who are lost. It's God's Spirit who actually gives to those sinners the ability to trust in Christ. And so, our own Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the Spirit applies to us the redemption which has been purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ. And so by giving you saving faith in Christ, your sins were placed upon Jesus Christ and He died to suffer the penalty that your sins deserved. By giving you saving faith in Jesus Christ, the perfection of Jesus' righteousness has been credited to your account God credits faith in the perfect one as if it was your own righteousness. Here's a letter written to those who belong to Christ. Once you've been saved, then how do you continue to live on this path of salvation? How do you deal with that remaining indwelling sin in your own life? How do you get traction? How do you know that you really are going to persevere to the end of life? It's an intensely practical passage. Robed in the righteousness of Christ, those who persevere in Christ make use of God's divine power. And so, our text breaks down into three simple points, effort, examination, and then encouragement. We'll start with effort first, and just so that we are all on the same page at the beginning. I am certain that Peter, writing in old age, saw and knew what I'm about to describe. In fact, every time you study the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, you will see this pattern. I see this pattern so intensely. Many of you have seen it in real life. And that is that many people start the Christian life seemingly well. Very few end well. When you're 20... You think that the biggest challenge that you face is your faith right here in college. And so I'm going to be really vigilant. You study God's Word. You strive to learn to pray. You surround yourself with other believers who will spur you on. And then when you get out of college, you realize, wait, there's a, a new set of challenges, temptations. And so you say, well, I, I want to I shore up my walk with Christ. I want to make sure that I get into a good church. I want to surround myself with some Bible studies. I want to find Christian community. I want to make sure I find a, a believing spouse. And then what happens is a dulling over time. So that somewhere in middle age, you become tempted to give less effort to your spiritual life. Why? Well, for some, they just get tired. Others will wrongfully think, well, I think I've got this figured out. I'm doing okay. And yet others will quite accidentally give themselves to less crucial matters. Work is going well. I'll invest my heart there. And then money starts pouring in. Life gets a little bit easier. The kids eventually leave the house, and there's a temptation to stop putting forth the effort uh, that is spiritually required to, to keep your heart on the path of life. You see what's happening is that all the corruption that he spoke about in the world out there in verse 4, those sinful desires which have laid dormant within your own heart begin to be fed, and perhaps accidentally 
And what I've seen, and you have too, is that there are actually many greater dangers later in life than you ever imagined. That's what Peter speaks to. That's what he addresses. Because God acted to give you eternal life, because God acted to give you the power for transformation, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Let's be clear, salvation in Christ already says you're as loved by God as you could ever be. And so what follows does not speak of a, of a salvation, what we might call justification, but rather how am I going to persevere to the very end? How am I going to remain faithful to Christ? How do I finish the second half of a race that seems really long? He says you must make a genuine effort to add to this faith Christ-like character. Greek writers outside of the Bible would have used this word virtue to explain the psalm of all desirable character qualities. And so verse 3, in Christ you've been called to God's glory and excellence. That word translated excellence in verse 3 is the exact same word translated virtue in verse 5. Why do I make that point? Because in Christ, you've been called to the excellence of God. You've been called to enjoy the sum of all of His desirable qualities. More than that, you've been called into a new status. And you're summoned to live a life of harmony that actually coincides with the character of the one to whom you've been called. Isn't this beautiful? I'm actually partaking, enjoying the very essence of God's glory and beauty. Only you cannot be in relationship with Almighty God without being changed by Almighty God. That's why you add godly character to your salvation. One commentator stated it this way. God creates the moral excellence He demands. Hence, it follows that the moral excellence of believers can only be attributed to God's grace. And yet, New Testament writers never polarize divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Those whom God has effectively called to virtue are also to practice the virtue with energy and intensity. Make every effort. Such a simple phrase. And you notice the interplay between what God has given and what you and I are called to, to give. Since God has granted to you all things that pertain to eternal life and godliness in this life, then you and I must make an appropriate response. We must supplement our faith with the character of the one who gave us the faith. Verb supplement could make you think, well, maybe something is lacking in my faith. It's an understandable question. Okay, so I've been saved. Then now that I've been saved, what do I need to do to keep God happy with me? Is that what Peter means? No. Your faith in Christ is sufficient for salvation. In Christ, God looks upon you with a smile that could only really rightly be pointed at His obedient, perfect Son, and you ain't Him. And yet that stare in your direction says that there's a summons. My salvation is secure. But given the faith that He has placed in my heart, 
I've got to make the best use. I must make the best use of the knowledge that has been given. And some of you come from a context where self-improvement was taught as, as a necessary first step to salvation. And so, you might be tempted to hear these words, effort, as if it's moralism or legalism. You better get yourself right. You can't get yourself right. You must cry out to Christ and repent. And then, having received that faith, you must grow. Or those sinful desires lying dormant in your flesh will grow in their place. One scholar said, godly character does not emerge from passivity. Look again at verse 5. He says, supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, we should not read these as stepping stones, as if I got to master this one in order to move on to the next one. But you do notice that faith begins the list. And that is because trusting in God is the root from which everything else grows. And what is it that ends the list? Love. Because love is the ultimate outcome of of genuine faith in Christ. Add to your faith virtue. That means everything that's morally good and pure. I want you to recognize that in the New Testament, there is a corresponding virtue for just about every vice or sin pattern that is listed. And so, I do not want to make this sound as if it is mechanical. But God seems to say, given the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, put off this vice and put on this virtue. Put off foolishness. Put off your old ways and put on knowledge and wisdom. Put off drunkenness and sensuality and lusts and put on self-control. Put off anger and bitterness and jealousy and put on brotherly affection. And so in Galatians chapter 5, those fruits of the Spirit which are listed carry with, the, with them the corresponding old patterns of the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, and Romans chapter 14, verse 3, basically tell us that anything not done from faith, not stemming from love for the Father, or any deed that's not empowered by the Holy Spirit is a work of the flesh. To be very clear, there would be a temptation to hear this sermon and go, oh man, I got a friend who's got some sins. And yet this is so precise that you can do nothing but search your heart first. You're told to throw off the old, the residual indwelling dead man within you and put on the new, that which Christ has produced in you. And the Bible never lies and says, this isn't going to be hard. That's why Peter says, make every effort. Do you know what that means? If you have ever driven a stick shift car, you'll get the image. There's always another gear for me to shift into. And when I shift into that gear, I must make another effort to to shift again into another previously untouched gear. And then with every small victory, another gear. And then I shift up to another and I add more and more effort 
to the God whose grace has already abounded in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see it? You're not going to out-effort the grace that's already been given. Now, I will quickly move through the rest of 5 through 7. Add to your virtue knowledge. Knowledge in the Bible is knowledge of God and of His will. So that as His children, you know how to glorify Him. You know how to enjoy Him. And you get that by gaining knowledge of the Scriptures. You read the Bible. In premarital counseling, I'm often looking at young couples. Part of their marriage, I say to them, you've got to learn to to know each other. Learn to understand what matters to the other. Because as you practice what matters and you you live in that knowledge, you actually build the relationship in, in depth of intimacy. And the same is true of your knowledge of of God. Add to your knowledge self-control. Because, of course, it's one thing to know God, but at some point every believer must bring his mind and his body under control. And that pertains not only to what you stew on in your mind, what you think about, what you give your thoughts permission to pursue, but also how you partake of food and, and drink and sex. And self-control is listed in the fruits of the Spirit of Galatians 5, really because it's an essential part of of spiritual maturity. Self-control means that you do the hard work to bring your body and mind to surrender to God's will. Is what I'm considering doing now going to lead me to greater freedom from sin, or will this further enslave me to my flesh Will it further enslave me to an idol that always overpromises and always underdelivers? And so without this self-control, you expose yourself to the corruption that you were redeemed out of. Add to your self-control steadfastness. This is what you might call endurance. That is the ability to stand under pressures and trials and persecution. It's, it's one thing to be self-controlled for a moment. But steadfastness comes as you are self-controlled moment to moment, no matter what hits you. And this, says Peter, builds for a lifetime. You add to your steadfastness godliness. The God who granted you all of this godliness has given you the fuel to accelerate that pursuit. We're called to live life in the full qualities of God's character. Add to your godliness brotherly affection. That is, show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that always starts in the home. Colossians chapter 3 says that this is the virtue that that binds all other virtues together. It's what separates unbelievers from believers. Add to brotherly affection love. In addition to the love that you have for for the Christians around you, the people that you can get along with, then also add a kind of love to neighbors, co-workers, even those who wrong you, says Jesus, Matthew 5, 44. So, robed in the righteousness of Christ, those who persevere in Christ make use of God's divine power. That's point one. Some of you are thinking to yourself, wow, if that's point one, I'll see you at 2 o'clock this afternoon. We'll move quicker. Point two, examination. Verse eight. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I just appreciate so much the way Peter comes beside us like a concerned pastor. And he states it negatively. He says, in order to avoid an ineffective, unfruitful relationship with Christ, those qualities must be not only in you, but also increasing. That's an invitation to self-examination. What's at stake here? In other words, what would be effective, fruitful use of the knowledge of Christ? Nothing short of when you die and face the Lord God Almighty, He can look at you and say, you really did bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You, You really bore fruits of one who truly knows me and you lived life under the light of my conviction. All your sins are laid upon my son. What's at stake? Peter says the whole blessings of eternal life or not. Maybe an illustration would help. Imagine that you have been unemployed for a long time. You had not had a paycheck in months. Finally, you get a good, well-paying job. It's going to supply your needs. You finally have a little peace of mind. The boss says to you, hey, listen, one thing, when you get here tomorrow, make sure you clock in first and then come see me and I'm going to get you started. I want you to have an effective, fruitful day. The description of verse 8 is of one who comes to work and he never clocks in. He never gets started working. He hangs out in the break room all day. Chatting it up with people who walk by. They've all clocked in. They're all putting forth a good, solid day's work. You hadn't clocked in. You're sitting over there looking at your coffee, thinking, I hope the boss doesn't find out. You should be saying, What a silly waste! Because I needed what I was given. I needed a job. I needed employment. Well, here's salvation. And verse 9 is like the other side of that coin. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And the allusion is to a person who has lost sight of the long-term most important things. A person who's lost sight of eternity. They've lost sight of the fact that they must be constantly repenting of their sins. Once they've turned to Christ, once they've embraced the cleansing waters of baptism, but where are their eyes focused at this moment? They're diverted to matters that are close, right in front of their face. In some cases, literally, they're so close that they're distracting them from all the truth that lies behind them. I wonder if you remember the preacher in Hebrews chapter 12 who makes the same warning. He says, do not grow weary in following Christ. And then he upholds Esau again like a negative example. See to it that none of you fails to obtain the grace of God. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent. Though he sought it with tears... Is there a more sober warning in the whole scripture? I don't know what it is. But the point is crystal clear. Esau never examined his own heart before it was too late. 
If you've ever trusted in Christ, if you have ever tasted the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you've ever known that God is revealing to you the sin within you, then you are being reminded that you were saved to be something new. Listen to that voice. That voice is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. Do not forfeit eternity by feeding your flesh or by feeding idols. And you might say, well, in Christ, I I, I clocked in for eternal life. And Peter says, then do not clock out and go stand in the break room. Do not stare at your empty cup of coffee while others embrace everything that's necessary on the path of life. If you hear my voice, the message is for you. Robed in the righteousness of Christ, those who persevere in Christ make use of God's divine power, effort, examination, encouragement. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Wait a second. Is it possible for a true Christian to to lose his or her salvation? No. No, Romans chapter 8 proves that. So does John 3, John 6, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Ephesians 1. In fact, it's all over the Scriptures. Peter isn't saying anything like that. But you should be clear to understand that the Bible is happy to speak on two levels. At one level, it speaks of these mysteries of God that only He understands and comprehends. And yet, at a ground level, the Bible speaks with all the human summons for you and I to persevere. So here's a verse that speaks in encouragement that runs two ways. Sort of like a parent who would encourage a child by saying, you can do this. This is going to be great. I believe in you. While the other parent encourages the exact same child, get after it. Put forth the effort. Make sure they know you are supposed to be on this team. Work. The emphasis of the verse is not really on what God has already done. And yet what God has already done is so clearly stated that that itself is an encouragement. God has called you to salvation. Before eternity passed, He elected you, though you were undeserving to have this status of sonship. But it's only as you add godly character to your status that you confirm to yourself and to those who are watching that you have been called and elected to Christ. John Calvin looked at this verse and he thought of it entirely subjectively. That is like those who grow in godly virtues will be encouraged personally to know God has called and elected them. They'll actually know, hey, my faith is real. As a pastor, though, I hear this question all the time. How do I know if I'm truly saved? Peter would say, do you experience conviction? Then heed its voice. Do you get a sense of good, sincere repentance? Then run back to the cross. And here's the path. 
Be all the more diligent to add godly character. Throw off sin. Embrace your new identity. Live a life of honest integrity with light shining in your dark places. You don't know the mind of God. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then keep walking ahead. Because here is a path of certainty. But you see it, don't you? This text is way more than subjective. There's something objective here. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That is measurable. Let's be clear. Don't hear what he's not saying. He doesn't say you'll never sin. He also doesn't say that you could sin in a way that would so severe that you would lose or forfeit God's love for you. Rather, he says, when you confirm your call and election by living in a godly manner, that process serves sort of like guardrails to keep you from walking away from your faith. It keeps you from abandoning Christ. I know of no one in 17 years of pastoral ministry who was striving to be vigilant to know the Lord who ever walked away from Him. I know of many people who wandered into laziness, wandered into deliberate disobedience, and eventually they walked away. See what Peter's doing? He's saying, hey, look, there's a path of life. Verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the pathway of virtue is actually the pathway to the entrance to the eternal kingdom. Martin Luther famously said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Many people start the Christian life well. Will you end it well? You see, I think that Peter is drawing a picture of perseverance that is quite beautiful in every season. Sinclair Ferguson says this, It is at the end of life, not only at the beginning, that Christians are to be most different from the rest of the world. Then the true beauty of a woman, the true character of a man is seen for what it really is. That's why there sometimes seems to be a touch of glory, a touch of light when you witness the heart of the elderly Christian. You see what he's describing? The end result of the transforming beauty of God's love the powerful, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And also the willing effort of those who would be saved by grace. Brothers and sisters, that you would persevere in Christ. Please make use of God's divine power.